Thank the Lord for that beautiful worship. Thank the Lord for working in his people to give us that privilege of calling upon his name and declaring his truth and praise. Former Army Sergeant Kyle J. White and his team of 14 U.S. soldiers along with Afghan National Army soldiers were ambushed November 9, 2007 after attempting to hold a meeting with village elders in the village of Aranas in Nuristan province. During the exchange of fire, White was knocked unconscious. When he came to, most of his platoon had slid for cover down a cliff, but he stayed. Left at the top with White were platoon leader First Lieutenant Matthew C. Ferrara, Specialist Kane Schilling, Marine Sergeant Philip A. Box, and the group's interpreter. White set about trying to assess the condition of his fellow soldiers, running and crawling through gunfire only to find Ferrara was already dead and Box badly wounded. Though he tried to stop Box bleeding, the Marine later died. Suffering from concussion, White treated Schilling's injuries and used one of the unit's uh, radios to call for help. When a helicopter arrived after nightfall, White only allowed himself to be evacuated after the, the wounded were assisted. At the May 31st or May 13th, 2014 ceremony in which he received the National Medal of Honor, the citation read that White acted without hesitation, exposing himself to heavy fire to help others. Sergeant White's willingness to risk his life to save his battle brothers illustrates the kind of love John calls us today to in this passage that we're going to look at in 1 John 3, 11 to 18. Not that most of us are going to be in, in uh, military combat facing these kind of dangers, but that kind of sacrifice for our brothers is what John's speaking about. And as we acknowledge, this is hard teaching from John. So uh, God, help, help us to, to be clear in what we say. God, give us receptive hearts to your truth. So we'll read this passage, 1 John 3, 11 to 18. First John 3, 11 to 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And these are the words of the living God. So the word for in verse 11 takes us back to verse 10. In verse 10, John had written, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So what John has just got done saying in verse 10 is that it evidences whether you love your brother or not, evidences whether you are God's child or not, meaning whether you have eternal life. So that's what he's talking about, and then he begins teaching us about love. And he says, from the beginning, this is the message you've heard. John used those same words back in chapter 2 when he talked about love. So this is basic stuff. This is basic Christianity, basic Christian living, 101, nursery, you know, toddler Christianity. We need to be taught to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just like you need to teach your kids. Some of you are in the throes of that right now. Some of you wish you would have taught your kids to love their brothers and sisters. But uh, that's, that's what John's saying. This comes with the package. Very basic from the beginning. And then verse 12, he says, We should not be like Cain. We should not be like Cain. Cain was Adam's firstborn. So, all right, John says not be like Cain. Note to self, don't be like Cain. What was Cain like? Well, uh, his neighbors were all surprised because he killed his brother. He was such a quiet farmer and all that. And um, <clears throat> he slaughtered his brother. Literally, that word means he slaughtered very violently his, his brother. All right, so don't be like Cain. Don't do that. John tells us that Cain was of the evil one in contrast to those who are of God, God's children. Where did John get this connection between being of the devil and being a murderer? Well, he got that from Jesus. Jesus taught in these words. Jesus said to the religious leaders who are his enemies, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. So why did Cain murder his brother Abel? Well, John tells us, but just a quick history. Moses wrote in Genesis that God had regard for Abel and his sacrifice and no regard for Cain and for his But God told Cain that if he did well, he would be accepted. So God said, look, there's a problem with you. I'm not not accepting you, but I can accept you if you'll do well. And then in the book of Hebrews, we read that that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain because he he offered his by faith. So he was counter-righteous. And so John gives us the explicit bottom line reason that Cain murdered his brother Abel because his own deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. Now, with that, we can imagine jealousy. Okay, you know, you got God's favor. I don't, and so I'm going to kill you. Uh, that's a pretty extreme version of jealousy, but we can imagine that. But really, what John is saying is that Cain's murder of Abel exemplifies the hatred that righteousness always provokes in the unrighteous. Cain's murder exemplifies the hatred that righteousness always provokes in the unrighteous. John says we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and slaughtered his brother. You say, I would never do that. And I, th- I say, boy, that's got to be one of your redeeming qualities, right? If you can say this today, you would not slaughter your brother, that's, that's a good start to loving people. But, um, but have you ever avoided? Well, let me back up. That's one of, your, one of your many redeeming qualities, I'm sure, that you would never murder a brother or sister in Christ. But have you ever avoided or separated yourself in hatred from your Christian brother or sister? Or have you ever resented another Christian because his godly behavior or her godly behavior or godly counsel exposed your sin? Or have you ever 
had bitter jealousy toward another believer because she seems to enjoy blessings or favor that you don't. Well, if so, then what is in your heart, if amplified, is murderous. That's what John says. I didn't say it. John said it. Well, I said it because he said it. That's what I'm saying. John takes what seems to be, to us, a garden variety, acceptable levels of sin and shows us its true nature. He shows us the amplified version of that sin, which shows the nature of it. That's why back in verse 4 of chapter 3, he said, all sin is lawlessness. We think, uh, little sins are okay, big sins are bad. Well, yeah, better to not go to the big sins, but all sin is sin. In fact, he says, all sin is rebellion against God. All sin hates God. At the core of it, that's what it is. It's a hating of God, a rejection of God himself, because it turns against his will. It's like this poison oak seed. If I had one, I'm glad I don't. It doesn't matter that right now it's relatively harmless. That thing's going to grow into a poison oak, and it's going to be hazardous to my health. So that's what John's saying. Sin in the bud is still sin, and we see the reality of it. We treat it as that. Call it what it is. John helps us do that. So John keeps drawing sharp lines between those who have true life in Christ and those who don't. He writes in black and white terms, painfully black and white terms, doesn't he? We feel it's extreme, but this is the word of God. As to the fact that who and how you love reveals whether you are of the world or of God. Who you love and how you love reveals whether you are of the world or of God, meaning whether you have eternal life or whether you don't. And that takes us to verse 13. That's why he says, Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Remember, the world here is is referring to all that is against God, all that rejects God, all that opposes God, all that is anti-God, that ignores or minimizes God, that redefines God as other than what he reveals himself to be, that hates what God loves and loves what he hates. Cain was the prototype of the world. Cain is an example of, of the world. Jesus warned his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you got your spiritual connection from the world only, then the world would love you as as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus said that would be the case. So John exhorts his readers and us from his Lord's teaching and his own experience, don't be amazed, don't be astonished, don't be shocked, don't marvel that the world hates you. Because if you have true life in Christ... It's because your identity is in him, and you are identified with him. So whatever the world's attitude is toward Jesus, and not just the concept of Jesus, but his teaching, his ways, his mission, his truth, his saving work on the cross, will be their attitude toward you. What their attitude is toward Jesus will be their attitude toward you. Well, some say, I don't hate Jesus, I just, it's just his followers I hate. Well, it's true that we don't often represent Jesus very faithfully, and we don't often very much look like him in our attitudes, our words, our actions. But it's also true that people have a dumbed-down version of Jesus made safe for American therapeutic self-esteem, a Jesus of their own imagination, a Jesus that they made him in the image they'd like him to be. So that when you're trying to faithfully live and speak according to Jesus' teaching and carry out his mission... You can get rejected, ridiculed, persecuted, marginalized, or ignored. 
It's like Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Sooner or later, your identity is going to show up. If you're in Christ, it's going to stick out. And you will be opposed. Now, the word hate covers a spectrum of attitudes and actions from extreme despising and violent persecution to just simply not love. So the biblical word contains that whole spectrum. Thankfully, very little of the hatred we experience is violent or even open extreme hostility. For example, in Pakistan, the entire country has spent generations forming a worldview that values the torturing of those that claim the name of Jesus Christ. Quran is central to the education there. And if you don't know the Quran, you can't get a good education, so therefore you can't get a good job. And so you suffer because of that. Christians are finding it difficult to get jobs because they can't access adequate education. In Pakistan, 3,000 Christian girls aged 10 to 12 are kidnapped every year. Repeat that. 3,000 Christian girls between ages 10 to 12 are kidnapped every year and forced into slavery, forced to convert to Islam and to slavery. Police must arrest Christians for any crime they are accused of, and they are really only accused of one crime, blasphemy, which carries an automatic death sentence. So as horrible as that is, we have to recognize that even on the spectrum of hatred that we experience, accusations may be we may be rejected by family members or friends for insisting that they need Christ or that the choices they are making are against God's word. John was writing in part to address a situation in which a group had left the fellowship. John said they left because they were not of us. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. That's because if they had fellowship with Christ, they would have remained in fellowship with this church. Because if they had life in Christ, they would love his people. In fact, as he says in the next verse, loving brothers and sisters in Christ is how we know we have eternal life. And that's verse 14. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. We know we've passed out of death into life. We know we've been changed from death into life. Believers in Christ are those who have passed or changed from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life. How do we know that? He says, because we love the brothers, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't hate Christians. We don't hate Christians what we know. We want to be with them, share life with them, talk about Jesus with them, worship God with them, pray with them, serve, serve them, and spread the gospel with them. John is saying that loving other Christians is one of the most significant evidences that we have true life in Christ. It's as though we are physically dead and all of our vital signs were not showing up. No heartbeat, no breathing, no brain waves. Then suddenly we come to life. Heartbeat, breathing, brain activity, at least for most of us. There was an, yeah. That was a slam. Yeah. There was an unquestionable evidence that we were dead and then clear evidence that we are alive. A major vital sign that we are alive in Christ is we love his people. And when, we, when he's talking about loving his people, he's talking about loving a church family. Because it's like, a, I can say I love people, but if I don't ever love a family in particular, like my own family, then it's easy to say I love people. So I can say, well, I love Christians. That's fine. I don't hate Christians. But he's talking about loving a particular group of Christians that would, you would call a church. 
I don't understand people who know Christ, who have been born again in Christ, who have nothing to do with any church. And it doesn't have to be a church like ours. It can be a humongous church. It can be a church of 10,000. It can be a home church of 20. But you've got to want to spend time with your family. And again, it doesn't do any good to profess to love people if you don't love your own family. So that's what John's talking about, loving Christians who you're up close and personal with. People sometimes get hurt by the church and they never return. Wow, don't you work through family hurts? Well, sometimes we don't do that very well either, do we? But that's the goal, is, is fellowship with a church family. And John says, if we don't love Christ's people, we abide, we remain in death. In other words, we continue in a state of spiritual death. And that's what he says in verse 15 as well. In verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Wow, John, he, come on, lighten up. He's just so intense, isn't he? But he's, he's, the shock value of these words calls out the reality of what he's talking about. I imagine for most of us, that's not our memory verse. You know, we might have John 3.16, but we don't have John, 1 John 3.15 memorized. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Okay, repeat, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Probably not learning that in Harvest Kids yet, huh? Again, thankfully, not everyone who hates his brother actually physically murders him. Otherwise, we would probably all be dead. But he's saying that the true nature of the sin of hating your brother, the full-blown expression of it, is murder. John's saying it, and I'm saying it because he's saying it. And he says, and you know, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, that doesn't mean that a murderer could never repent, turn to Christ, and receive forgiveness and eternal life. Just like any other sin, if you habitually are unrepentant in any area, whether it's greed, gossip, lying, uh, sexual immorality, you could say that same thing. The unrepentant greedy person, the unrepentant immoral person, and so on, the unrepentant liar, has no eternal life abiding in him or her. But the good news is you can repent and turn to Christ, and you can have forgiveness and eternal life no matter what your sin is. Some of the best Christians I've known have been murderers ex-murderers. You say, how do you know that, Pastor Gary? Well, I learned it in prison. I was not an inmate. It was up at Clallam Bay Corrections Center, up in Clallam Bay, Washington, where we were doing prison ministry, and a couple of the greatest guys you would ever want to know had, had, had been there for murder. But they, they had turned to Christ so profoundly. Uh, one of them to, has been released, and to this day, he's a, 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 an evangelist down in Mexico. He was known as the, the hammer killer, from the Mexican mafia, and now he's taking down people for Jesus, but not killing them, bringing them to life. <laughs> yeah. So what John is saying, what he's at pains to make a point of, is in the boldest possible terms, you can't claim to be a Christian and hate. You cannot claim to be a Christian and be a hater. That is, not love others who belong to Jesus. And he's made that so painfully clear. If we haven't got it with the language he's using, we're never going to get it. Now, having shown us how love is the evidence of eternal life, John will now show us that sacrifice is the essence of love. And that's verse 16, where he talks about, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We've come to know that the essence of love is... This, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He sacrificed his life so that we might have life. 
This is love, so valuing the life of another that we lay down our lives for them. That is what love is. As John pictures Cain as a supreme example of hate, so now he presents Christ as a supreme example of love. Rather than hating our brother and taking life from him, we ought, and he uses that word ought. Can we say ought? John says ought. Ought. We ought to love our brother. You said, well, my parents quit to tell me ought when I was 12. Well, John's coming back and saying we ought to love our brother by spending our life to give life to him rather than taking it from him. You know, again, on Memorial Day, we remember those who have laid down their lives for our country. These people loved their country more than they valued their own lives. They spent their lives that we might have life. But you know, interestingly, those who, uh, those who risk their lives to save their battle brothers and who live to tell about it, almost inevitably will say something like this. I'm not a hero. I'm, I just did my duty. Have you ever heard that? People will say, they may not use the word duty. Sometimes they do. But I'm just doing what anybody else would do. And they kind of downplay it. Um, so... This is like the oughtness of loving our Christian brothers and sisters. We ought to love our brothers and sisters because Christ has laid down his life for us. It's not going above and beyond the call of duty to spend our lives for for others. Loving, however difficult our brothers and sisters in Christ are to love, it's not extreme to love people who are hard to love because probably I'm one of them, right? I know often we oppose love to duty. We say, well... It's, you know, we shouldn't just serve God or love God out of duty, but out of love. I'd like to reclaim duty as an expression of love. Because in light of this text that we ought to lay down our lives, I think, if you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, you will feel really good about me. Well, we do feel good about Jesus, but he's saying, if you love me, you ought to keep my commandments. So duty and, and love are not opposed. You know, if your spouse or your child or your brother has fallen down or fainted in the middle of a busy street, you're not going to stop and say, I wonder how I feel about them. You're going to go do your duty. You're not even going to think about that. You're going to do that like the gentleman we read about earlier on. Without thinking, you're going to respond. You're going to go save that person. Because you love them and because you are doing your duty and because it comes naturally. So it's not either, either a compassionate heart or duty, it's both. In verse 17, John gets super, super unavoidably practical. He says, if you have this world's goods, the, the word goods comes from the word, we, we, we would pronounce it bios, which a person, uh, life things, a person needs to live in this world. Sustaining resources, life-sustaining resources. If you have life-sustaining resources, in other words, this world's good, and you see your brother in Christ in need, yet you close your heart, literally your bowels of compassion, your gut compassion for him, if you do that, how does God's love abide? How does the giving, sacrificing love of God dwell in you? So he's just making it super, super ground-level practical for us. John has given us a practical bottom, practical bottom line application as to how we are to love one another. So if you see your Christian sister struggling to keep up with meals because she has a new baby, provide some meals. If you see your brother is struggling to pay his bills because he's out of work and 
Unemployment has been inadequate or run out? Help him. We have the Compassion Fund to help with that as well. Or if you have connections, help him find a job. You can use your skills and abilities to help others who lack them. Students, yeah, talking to you. Teach the older folks to use their smartphones, their tablets, their computers. <laughs> and older folks, now they all fled for Memorial Day. They're all pick, you've got a few. I'm, I'm looking where they normally sit because right now I see only young folks over here. But um, the older folks teach the kids to spend their time doing things other than smartphones, tablets, social media, and computer by giving them job skills, uh, work around the house skills, cooking, those kinds of things, sewing. So those kinds of things we can do. Older guys and ladies, share your life experience with the younger guys and ladies so they can learn from your wisdom and learn from your mistakes. Those who have been married for some decades and who still like each other, come alongside those who are newer to marriage and need help in liking each other. Those who have raised kids, share from your experience with these new parents. We could go on. Maybe some of these examples will stir your hearts to pursue ways you can meet practical needs in your church, family, or to make your needs known because we don't, we're not mind readers. Sometimes people say, well, didn't you know that? No. We need to know what people need. But the best way to do that is when you have relationships with people in the body. So community groups are a great way. They're not the only way to do that, but they're, they're a primary way here at Harvest that we connect and know one another so that we have that context for knowing what one another's needs are. Not that the community groups are the only groups that can meet those needs, but just that that is a way that you can be known and know people. Uh, One thing to clarify, loving people by meeting their needs doesn't mean we love them by giving them whatever they think they need. If our parents had raised us that way as kids, we would be monsters, right? Uh, So if you're an alcoholic, you may think loving you means giving you a quart or a case of beer. Or a gambling addict may think loving him means giving him a few dollars because this time he's going to win big. I had a roommate back in my early 20s who was a gambling addict. I was in bed, oh, I think it was about 11 or 12 at night. He woke me up and said, I got to go to the dog track. Can you take me to the dog track? I just got to make some more money. And I refused, and he, he did not think that I loved him very much. And I wasn't thinking so much about loving him. I just wanted to go back to bed. <laughs> but that's, what he, that's how he would spell love, take me to the dog track. And no, that would not be loving him to take me to the dog track. Loving people means giving them what will do them good and not harm. And then in verse 18, John says, Little children, he reminds us he loves us. He gives hard words. But because he loves us, he gives us these hard words that we need to hear. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, in action and reality. He knows we need encouragement to love as we ought to love. So we need to have our love radar up every day. I'm not talking about the song Radar Love. That takes us back to the 1973, exposes us for our raunchy listening habits. I'm talking about having our love radar up, opportunities, always prayerful. How can I love better? That's what Paul says. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 3, he says, I pray the Lord will make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So I'm going to pray that for us as we close. And I'm also going to encourage you, if you need prayer today for anything whatsoever, we're going to have some folks up here who are ready to pray with you. 
And uh, you'll have that poll, well, should I get prayed for? I might miss the food. Well, the food, there will, trust God, food will be available for you out there in the foyer. But uh, please, if you need prayer for any matter whatsoever, then we'll, we'll be here to pray for you. So let's close. Father, I love this church. I love these people because you have put your love in my heart for them and because they're a bunch who really know how to love well. But like their pastor, we can always love better and differently and more. So would you cause our love to increase more and more in practical, on the ground, not just talk, but in action and in truth, in action and reality. And Father, I pray for those who may not have embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. Because we can't love the way you want us to love unless we have Jesus, the greatest lover in the universe, who laid down his life so that we could have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. We may have not even known that was the worst problem we had, and that was the greatest loving act that he, he could have done for us, but he did powerfully, awesomely love us by laying down his life, bearing the punishment that my sin deserved on himself, bearing the shame and the, the wrath that I deserve. But because he is powerful as the Son of God, because he was perfectly holy, and we sang that, holy, holy is the Lord. You are perfectly holy. We don't have a concept of that, Father. We know it's true, though, that you are perfect, righteous, holy in all your ways, and your son Jesus is the righteous one, perfect. And so he's granted us that new life, that righteousness, that holiness, and hatred of sin. He's given us what we need to love others with a holy kind of love. And we recognize it's still kind of messy because we're not completely perfected in that gift that he's given us yet. We long for that day, Father, when we will be, everything else will be stripped away, all the old junk completely gone. And even as your word says, the thing that's going to remain, three things right now, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, and love will endure forever. We couldn't contain it in these fleshly containers now, but we've got the first taste of it. So, Father, show us more and more what it means to love like Jesus loved. Help us to have our love antenna up, our love radar on at all times. And forgive us for the ways, Father, we frequently don't love as Jesus would have us. Thank you. Thank you for for giving us Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.